This is Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio, FM 98. Hello there, this is Christopher Melke, and I am your host for Past Perfect. This is CEU Medieval Radio show in medieval and early modern history and culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. We are joined today by Professor Alan Cameron. Professor Cameron is a professor emeritus at the Department of Classics at Columbia University in New York City. Um, Thank you very much for joining us today. I'm glad to be here. So um, I wanted to start off um, our interview by talking about um, the first book that you wrote um, about um, a poet named Claudian at the court of Honorius, uh, Emperor Honorius, I should clarify. Um, Would you mind telling us a little bit about that, please? Well, I didn't have any, I didn't stay on and do research at university. And the first thing I did after leaving university was to read Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. And I got to his chapter about the age of the Emperor Honorius, and I discovered rather to my surprise that the principal source was a Latin poet who incidentally was by birth an Egyptian and a Greek speaker, but a very talented person who came to Rome and wrote in Latin. And since I'm mainly interested in history, but my preparation is in literature and particularly Latin poetry, this seemed a perfect subject. And so I started reading the poet Claudian, about whom almost nothing had been written, and discovered to my interest that his poetry was highly political and is the main historical source for the period and never really been interpreted properly. And people had noticed that he said different things about the events of the period in different poems. But people just thought that this was because he was willful. But it occurred to me that the sensible thing to do was to read his poems in chronological order. Okay. And then I discovered that whenever he changed the story, there was a political reason for it. The political situation had changed, and he started giving a different version. I see. And, um, you know, this was the beginning of my research. So certain, like certain heroes became villains, certain villains became heroes. Was it was it was it just people who sort of have? This oh no, events. Event. I mean, uh, you know, various battles. Um, one in one poem, they, the Romans appear to have won, and then a bit later we discover that they didn't really. I see. And uh, he's uh, explaining the policies of the principal figure who obviously employed his talents and. People just think that they could explain him as he's a poet by exaggeration, but while, of course, he does exaggerate, he obviously all the time knows exactly what he is saying. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was rather pleased that uh, most people were persuaded by the general thesis of my book, (laughs) and after this took Claudian seriously as as a political figure. I mean... um you use the word propaganda in the ti- in the title, so is is Claudian in this instance a, a propagandist in your opinion? Yes, that was the word that rather upset the more traditional critics oh because they said um, 
a real poet can't be a propagandist. But this is nonsense, really. Um, <laughs> you know, propaganda is simply following, trying to encourage people to believe a particular line. Sure. And it doesn't affect the quality of his verse that he is in general trying to give a favorable version of the policies of particular people. But um, there were particularly some traditional German scholars who were rather upset by my use of the word propaganda, but I think most people have come round to it now. I, I mean, I don't mind if you don't actually use the word propaganda and talk about policies. Somehow sure. it's respectable to be political, but not respectable to be a propagandist. Yeah, it, it is one of those very loaded words yes. um, for for some reason where, you know... And, and, and it's the, and originally a Catholic term for pro, pro, de propaganda fide, yes. for pushing the faith, and I think this perhaps influences people. Ah, <laughs> oh, that that is that is that is true. There's, um, I mean, even even nowadays in the modern U.S. world, if you have advertisement, that's one thing. But if you're accused of being a propagandist, oh no, 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 we can't mm-hmm. have that. Um, obviously, if he's if he's writing these things with a, a particular um, purpose in mind. Um, a question more out of ignorance. I mean, who would the contemporary audience have been for Claudian's works? Well, it's a very interesting question because he was fairly clearly a pagan. Mm-hmm. And St. Augustine, who was his exact contemporary and actually quotes from his work, calls him a very stubborn pagan, but I don't think he really knew very much about him. But Virtually all his poems, which have a very highly pagan appearance, they're full of references to the ancient gods and goddesses, they were all recited at the court of the Emperor Honorius, who was a Christian and all of whose ministers were Christian. So Mm. straight away this gives you an idea of the complications of the pagan-Christian distinction. But... um, Some of his poems give what has to be described as a completely false picture of uh, certain political events of the period, and people would say to me, but he couldn't get away with actually lying. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, these people haven't been reading modern newspapers, (laughs) I think. And in any case, I think in antiquity, it was very difficult for anybody to have accurate information about, you know, wars that were fought many hundreds of miles away. Fair enough, yeah. Um, You know, they they inevitably believed reports that came in or or were suitably skeptical, but it was very difficult to be sure of of your facts. Mm. So to say that... Um, a political writer couldn't get away with lying. The term lying is rather an extreme term anyway, but... Um, In some ways more extreme than propaganda. <laughs> yes, but, uh, you know, you give a certain uh, direction or thrust to what you're saying. You emphasize one angle sure, rather sure, than sure. another. But his his poems were very, very popular, and everything he wrote survives, which mm-hmm. is very unusual. No kidding. And he was obviously writing in a medium that had become popular in the Greek world, writing panegyrics and epic poems about the, the doings of the current figures in power. 
and none of his Greek predecessors survive, but the whole of Claudian's work survives, and he had many successors in Latin. So this Greek poet adapting a Greek medium in Rome Mm -hmm. really introduced an entirely new style of writing political poetry into the Latin West. I see. So he was... In a, in a very interesting way, a very influential figure. And his work stops quite suddenly in 404 AD, and I think one has to assume that he died then. I see. Must still have been young, because he wrote a poem every year, and sometimes more than one a year for a dozen years, and then stopped abruptly. Mm. So uh, I think we'd have had a lot more Claudian if he'd lived longer. I see. And that would have survived too, I think. Why does it survive? I suppose, well, it's a very high-quality verse. I mean, Latin poetry had reached its sort of height in the very early 2nd century AD with the poet Juvenal, and then very little had been written since, and he reintroduced Latin poetry in the grand style in very high-quality verse. And people found it, very exciting, clearly. I see. So, as I said, it, it's it's very surprising that a Greek writer somehow revitalized Latin poetry. That it sounds like there's a lot going on there, and the um, but we really know. Abs- we, you said we know very little about Claudian the person. No, we just oh. know that the Empress Serena found him a wife. That's about the only personal detail we have. Oh, that was nice. And she was a very pious Christian, so I'm sure it was a Christian girl. So, once again, uh, you know, that detail tells us something about his uh, connections at court. He wrote a number of poems about the Empress, so he obviously had quite a coterie at court of friends and patrons, most of whom we have reason to believe were Christian. For this particular segment, I want to talk about um, something that you um, mentioned uh, in the first section. Um, There was this poet Claudian, Greek and Egyptian poet, who was um, praising a Christian emperor, and you said that he was using um, a lot of Greek mythological figures how do these these pagan Greek figures um, survive and operate in the late antique Roman world? Well, mythological poetry was always very popular, but in the the late empire, in the age of Claudian, it was very often applied to contemporary mm-hmm. themes. The classical poets and the Roman epic poets largely wrote on traditional mythological themes. Virgil's Aeneid is mythological, but it has, since the hero Aeneas is the founder of Rome, that we we are constantly reminded that Roman history will come out of this Greek mythology. But um, at a certain point, I mean, Greek mythology is a very popular subject. It's taught in translation. There are lots of courses, lots of popular books, and people are always trying to define mythology, which seems to me rather a waste of time. (laughs) And I'd always said to myself that one thing I can be sure of is that I will never write a book on Greek mythology. 
Uh-huh. But then at a certain point, it suddenly dawned on me that Greek mythology is an absolutely central feature of the culture of the Greco-Roman world throughout its time, right down into the late Byzantine period. And how did people actually learn mythology? And so I decided to investigate this and and wrote an entire book about it, a book which I never really thought about writing until I just had this idea that I really needed to investigate how people knew about mythology. And obviously, to some extent, you just pick it up because the classical poets mention so much mythology. Mm. But outside, but Greek drama is all about mythological themes, but each play is just about some very small detail in the life of Orestes or Agamemnon or Medea. Or, you know, mm-hmm. they never tell the whole story. I see. And the learned poets of later periods fill their works with allusions to myth, but the allusions are often rather obscure, and again, they never tell the whole story. Mm-hmm. And there was a sort of cult of, rather irritating cult of learned references to mythology, and you would often not use the name Achilles, you know, the most famous of the Greek heroes, mm-hmm. but you'd call him the son of Peleus. You'd refer to him by his father's name or perhaps his mother's name, or call him the... Bro- I mean, Achilles doesn't have brothers, but you, you'd refer to, to a character as the brother of somebody. So you need to know more mythology to understand mythology. And I discovered a whole cult, particularly during the late Hellenistic and Roman period, of handbooks of mythology, um, which tell the stories in great detail, often completely irresponsible detail, adding material and details that uh, are not authentic. But it's clear that, and papyri have given us lots of fragments of um, mythological works, but it's clear that as well as just sort of imbibing uh, mythology from reading the great dramatists or Homer, people actually read handbooks of Greek mythology Um, One of the curious things I found about these handbooks is that they pretend to be learned and quote learned references. And when they're telling the story of Achilles, say, they will cite the classical authors who tell various stories. And it is a fact which no one had appreciated before I did this investigation that in effect... The earliest handbooks of Greek mythology going back to the Roman period is pretty much the invention of the footnote because Hmm. these works cite their references. I see. And once I'd done a bit of work following up all these references, I mean, nobody paid much attention to them. I discovered that a very large number of them were bogus. (laughs) Sometimes they they would use the names of real writers... But they obviously hadn't actually looked them up because these writers were long since lost. But sometimes they just made up writers, and so. But the but the you know the 
the, the citation of them gives it that air of authenticity. That's right. And everybody had noticed that um, before this, ancient writers are very loath to cite sources. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They, they write very vaguely and say, as, as most writers say, without giving names. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, the mythographers give all these these bogus names. So the invention of the footnote goes back to these very third-rate <laughs> handbooks of Greek and Roman mythology. How funny. This 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 goes to show that if you are reading anything historical, you should always check your sources. Indeed. <laughs> so in, in these later periods, I do have to ask, um, are there any um, particular figures who become popular who weren't so popular? In early? mythology. In, in mythology, or any, or do anyone sort of fall by I, the side I of the way? I did a particular study of Achilles, as in part why I, I, I mentioned him. Now, Achilles is the most famous, brutal of all the Greek warriors who kills people by the score on every page of the later books of the Iliad. But in later times, it's very, very strange, but people were interested in his childhood. And he had a very strange childhood because his mother took him to a girl, made him go and hide in a girls' school dressed as a girl because she had heard a prophecy that if he went to Troy, he would be killed. I see. And she wanted to stop him going to Troy. Now, of course, straight away we know that this is not going to work because he's the famous Trojan warrior. But he was dressed as, as a girl and... Odysseus, the cunning Odysseus, the the figure of cunning in myth, heard about this, and so he went to visit the court of the king of the island of Skyros, where Achilles was wearing a frock along with the other girls. (laughs) And he, before his interview with the king and his family, he put spears and shields and things around the place, and then he got somebody to blare the war trumpet. And and young Achilles, you know, being at heart a true warrior, immediately rushed for the nearest spear and gave himself away. It's a <laughs> wonderful story. <laughs> and his main teacher was a centaur. Oh, that's... The uh, centaur Chiron. That's right. Who was, of course, very good at teaching him to ride well, being half a horse. <laughs> Shows that anyone, and anyone if, can learn if they put their mind to That's it. That's right, yes. <laughs> Bo- both about the, the comment about the footnotes and about um, Achilles and that, you know, nice summer dress, I think, are, are just really quite hysterical. <laughs> Since in, in, the, in the late antique period, you know, Christianity becomes the religion of the empire, do you often see a sort of blending of mythological traditions with um, Christian traditions? Well, not r- Sometimes they're reinterpreted a bit, but in general, no. I see. Um, Most people in the older scholarship used to see the mythological poets of the period as obviously being pagans. But the fact is that any educated person was supposed to be able to understand mythology. Uh You know, houses had mythological scenes above all painted on their walls, almost, you know, very high proportion of the mosaic pavements that survive have mythological scenes. And it's clear that if a friend invited you to dinner, 
you were expected to be able to recognize the mythological scenes. Ah, yes, of course. And, you know, people might ask you and say, you know, what what is that? What is Achilles doing there? Ah. And you were expected to say, ah, that is where he is doing X, Y, and, and Z. So Christians were expected to know this mythology and we have a very large number of remnants of ancient commentaries on the classical poets in both Greek and Latin, often called scholia. And the one thing they do above all else in interpreting the classical poets is explain the mythological references. Mm-hmm. And it's clear that, and this is, all these date from the Christian period. So it's clear that schoolboys, Christians, were grilled in the details of mythology in a very unimaginative way. I mean, (laughs) one of the main focuses of modern commentaries on the classical poets is trying to show how the poet is using a mythological reference, you know, in a sort of subtle way to Mm -hmm. interpret the present-day events he's talking about. But the ancient commentators just tell the story of the myth. They don't say, by alluding to so-and-so in this way, Virgil is trying to suggest such and such. They just say, ah, um, Ajax, son of (laughs) so-and-so, and they just tell the story. Hmm. Very unimaginative (laughs) teaching. (laughs) But they did know their mythology. I'm, I'm sure that they did. So for our last um, segment, I wanted to talk about um, a recent book of yours, The Last Pagans of Rome. Uh, Would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Yes, well, it was a book I sort of planned to write a long time ago, but I kept putting it off for other projects while collecting material. And I think my I think I rather started out by wanting to think that um, the pagans made a valiant stand Mm -hmm. against the encroachment of Christianity. And this was indeed a very popular view 50 years ago and longer. But the more I studied it, the more I came to see that um, the pagans didn't really put up much of a stand. (laughs) (laughs) And um, this is partly because um, paganism didn't really have any existence. Paganism was just the traditional cults, but pagans didn't have to believe anything Mm -hmm, in particular. mm -hmm. Ordinary people would just attend the festivals, and you you would you didn't nobody exactly had to believe in the gods. I see. And plenty of people were fairly skeptical about all the traditional stories of the gods. So when a religion like Christianity came along Mm -hmm. that believed in certain very specific um, dogmas and had holy books that people interpreted and were expected to believe Mm -hmm. and quoted you know, details from the life of Jesus and the various prophecies of the Old Testament which Christians reinterpreted to refer to Christianity. Um, 
the pagans really had nothing to put against it. And the moment Christians became dominant in the state after the Emperor Constantine became Christian and started pushing his own version of Christianity, there was very little that pagans could do to... I mean, people often talk about there being a pagan revival, but it's hard to see what a pagan revival could be. The Emperor Julian, who used to be a Christian but took against it very violently Mm -hmm. and became what you might call a born-again pagan, (laughs) um, his paganism was essentially a pagan version of Christianity. I see. uh, Which very few people sympathized with. And I think it would never have been successful. But um, anyway, I uh, I investigated the the problem of the end of paganism, I and see. I think it just sort of petered out rather ineffectively at a certain point, which is not the view that people held for a long time. And indeed, I myself was rather disappointed to discover that paganism... I mean, people love to talk about the last pagan stand, yeah. but I couldn't really find any moment when there was a last pagan stand. <laughs> well, my understanding of the way that paganism worked or that, that the, in, the, in, in the Roman period was that it was sort of a reciprocal relationship with the higher power where the person would make a sacrifice and say, oh, be you god or goddess, I would like X, Y, and Z, and, you know, then would go about their business. In terms of the organization, the the Christian church, by comparison, you know, has the bishops and the high amount of organization uh, Mm. in that period as well, which I think Uh, worked to its advantage. When you say that Julian was trying to operate paganism in the same way as Christianity, was he trying to implement the same sort of organization? Yes, Yes. and it didn't really make sense because most pagan priests were not like Christian priests. Mm -hmm. I mean, bishops and the elders of the Christian church were elected by their congregation because they were you know, rather good managers or because they made innovations in theology. But, Mm -hmm. you know, for some reason, they were prominent, effective members of the Christian community. And they were actually elected by people. Whereas almost everywhere in the pagan world, priests were the nobility. Mm. So there was no distinction between the nobility and the priesthood. Um, the, the priests of the Roman state cults were all members of the highest aristocratic families. And it used to be very common to assume that these aristocrats um, mounted a sort of opposition to Christianity but they had a deeply ambiguous position Mm -hmm. because they wanted to maintain their position in the state. Mm -hmm. And so eventually all the aristocratic Roman families who used to monopolize the pagan priesthoods became Christian because if they didn't, they were not going to get appointed to high office. So they were actually the very worst people 
<laughs> to mount an opposition to Christianity, I, well, and they didn't. Well, they had the most to lose. They had the most to lose, yes. I mean, they went through the motions and protested at certain things, but mm. when they saw the protests weren't going to work, on the whole, they rather quietly withdrew. So, um, And they didn't represent anybody. Pagan nobility would usually acquire these priesthoods, and there were a very large number of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were literally scores, if not hundreds, of priesthoods, so that virtually every Roman aristocrat would have at least one priesthood of some sort, which meant that there were no obvious leaders, since there were so many of them. (laughs) (laughs) And... um, they, they they really just um, quietly let their duties go. I think. I think that really puts the sort of. I mean, we're we're talking about this this transition taking place in the fourth and mm. fifth centuries. Was it a sort of um, long ongoing process, or after Julian was that pretty much you know, the end of it? Well, it was a little while after Julian before sacrifice was finally forbidden. Mm-hmm. But there were apparently quite a lot of pagans who didn't really like blood sacrifice before Mm. then. So it's not clear that there was a great fuss on the pagan side when they were forbidden to sacrifice, you know, to actually kill animals in sacrifice. But um, by... Before the end of the 4th century, most pagan rituals were forbidden. Mm. And we tend to hear on the Christian side that there's a lot of surviving paganism. But um, I think a lot of Christians were very paranoid about what they considered to be pagan. I think that real paganism died in the 4th and 5th century, but it didn't die enough for mm. Christians. And, you know, there's some um, rather paranoid friend of Augustine who writes to him saying, the other day I was very thirsty and I was passing by this completely ruined, demolished temple and there was a little spring inside it, and I was so thirsty I went in and drank from this spring. Will I go to hell? And Augustine reassured him and said that he thought it would be all right. But (laughs) anything that had ever been tainted with with paganism remained pagan for a lot of Christians. I see. So some people have drawn a picture of the survival of paganism, which is entirely based on paranoid Christian uh, anxiety about, um, you know, a ruined temple that's too close to where they walk by. And, uh, the last question that I wanted to ask you on this about your um, present or um, future um, projects. So uh, what are you working on these days? Well, at the moment I'm working, I-, I tend to shift fairly dramatically from one subject to another. Some people just toil away on a single subject all their careers, but I veer from Latin to Greek and um, across the centuries. But at the moment, I'm working on early Byzantine ivory carving. There are lots of very beautiful 
um, ivories that survive, and I'm working on them with an art historian friend of mine, who I was rather surprised to discover went to the same school as I did in England, only he's four years older than me, and of course four years is, you know, a generation <laughs> when you're schoolboys. I see. But really I'd like to think that... Um, before I die, I'll write something about a subject that I haven't yet even thought of. I think you still have plenty of time, and there's plenty of things out there. So yes. I say you go for it. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, um, it's been a real pleasure having uh, you here today. We we thank you so much for coming and joining us uh, on our show today. I'm very glad to have been here on my first visit to Budapest. And for the listeners back at home, be sure to tune in to us on the web at www.medievalstudies.ceu.hu slash radio. Be sure to send us an email with uh, any questions or comments or concerns you have at medievalradio at ceu.hu. And be sure to like us on Facebook as well. We thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>